Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETS sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He is the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Interesting show today. We have two great guests, Howard Silverblatt. He's the senior index analyst at S&P Dow Jones Indices in the first part of the program. The second part, we'll be talking with Danielle DiMartino Booth, who's been uh, a key insider on the Fed. She's written a book, Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America, and we're here talking about the Fed uh, this week as the, you know, we're getting closer to Trump's new nomination for the Fed chair, and we're interested to take on, on Danielle's side and where, where she sees the Fed. Uh, Professor, though, the big story this week, we're getting closer to tax reform or tax cuts or whatever the, the Republicans are planning to do, but we're getting progress. I know you've been talking about that every week. What is your sense uh, of the big news this, that we're seeing this, this week? On, oh, on yeah. Again, this one? morning, uh, the kind of surprise news overnight that they got the Bezos resolution. That's the, uh, uh, you know, the pre-text for them to get tax reform with uh, just uh, 51 votes in the Senate. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think it's huge. I think it jumps uh, tax uh, reform. Now, let me, let me say this. I still think corporate tax reform is the most likely. Uh, so I want to ask Howard about that, too. There's a lot of more bipartisan support. I'm not saying Democrats are going to go along with it. Uh, there's also a lot of less contention uh, with the individual tax reform and how you're going to work that. Um, but uh, that certainly does uh, see that. And, and there's no question the markets, uh, you know, this morning are reacting positively to that in every way. First of all, we got uh, uh, yields moving up on the bonds. Um, because of the prospect that the tax cut will increase the deficit and hence the supply of bonds onto the market so uh, and and pump the economy that, that's rational although let's also note that interest rates still remain extraordinarily uh, low uh and uh even though the stock market itself is is hitting all-time highs uh, uh and this is a worldwide phenomenon by the way i i heard that overnight the nikkei had, if I'm correct, the 14th straight increase in its index, the first time this has happened since 1961. Wow, over a half a century. Now, uh, again, they are, they are not at all-time highs because we all know about the grand bubble of the late 1980s, uh, but uh, yet there is some impressive news coming out of Japan. Pan on the um, on the economic front 
uh, finally, Abenomics might be working uh, uh, long delayed uh, there. Uh, we also this week have had several news articles saying that the um, uh, the choice for Fed chair uh, has narrowed uh, to Jerome Powell and um, John Taylor. Um, uh, predicted uh, actually had shot up for Powell up to the 70s. I just checked it uh, as a now I think it's 58 percent. The next closest is Yellen at 16, Taylor only 15. Uh, it, it seems like the market thinks it's going to be Powell. Uh, uh, and I can certainly live with Powell. I, I, I want to emphasize that his training is not in economics or monetary theory and policy, although he's been a very good regulator um, and he's been a good team member of, of the Fed board. Um, his positions have been slightly more hawkish than Yellen, but perceived as less hawkish, certainly, than John Taylor. Um, my question is, could he be a leader? And I, I think that when we, when we think about that, we also have to think about uh, the fact that uh, um, Trump also has to nominate a vice chair. We've talked many times about the loss of Stan Fisher a personal reason for uh, resigning from that position. But I think that that uh, Trump needs to pick now a vice chair. There is no vice chair either. Um, and, um, uh, you know, at least Yellen is chair until the end of January, but there is no vice chair right now. So uh, I think by the, the, the position of vice chair becomes even more important, given the fact that Powell himself will be relying on a lot of Fed staff uh, uh, for that. So, uh, so I'm, I'm not saying Powell is a bad choice. It would not be my choice. Uh, there's no, no extreme choice here. Um, but the question is, uh, in, in, in a crisis or, or even not in a crisis, could he be a leader not being schooled in the language of monetary policy? Because Fed chair has never historically served as one that is a point, uh, man on, on, on regulation of the banking system, although clearly uh, he or she, Fed chair, must be familiar with those issues. It is monetary policy um, and not regulation that, that uh, distinguishes a Fed chair. I'm not, as I said, I'm not worried about Powell. Uh, he's a very smart man and uh, has uh, certainly served as governor for a number of years, so he knows the script. Um, the question is, I think uh, the vice chair becomes much more important and the voices uh, that he will be hearing during the meetings, uh, who are uh, many of them more schooled in the, in, the, in the language of monetary theory and policy, might become more important uh, than uh, they have in the past. Very good uh, way to start the show here, uh, Professor. Let me bring in Howard Silverblatt to the conversation. Howard is somebody you and I have worked with over the years as sort of the head of indexes at S&P. He does a lot of commentary weekly that we subscribe to. Uh, you know, when we did the work for the Future for Investors and we looked at the original 500 companies in the S&P 500, we went back and forth with Howard a lot on that. Howard, welcome back to our program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Um, so maybe you've been at S and P for people, you know, listening in for the first time to 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 have you on. Maybe talk a little bit about when you joined S and P. You've been there for quite some time. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about your role there at S and P. I've been here forever. When I came to S and P, it was 1977. Berkshire Hathaway was $100 a share, the same one that's 240000 today. And the S&P was also $100. Uh, the markets have changed over that time period, which I guess is, is the biggest item, as my role has also changed in there because the markets have changed. Uh, the different types of investors, uh, the ability to quickly get in and out, moving up and down in stocks, uh, you know that has been the biggest change over the over the time. Uh, personally, uh, I've dealt with the indexes for about 35 of those 40 uh, years. At this point, we're always in with data, and, and the indices have grown same way uh, as the market has grown. Uh, and uh, it, it's just a dynamic situation today. The way the way the trading goes, as compared to what it was. 40 years ago. When I opened up a brokerage account, it took over a week. I had to go down with my passport. Now I can open up an account online and go bankrupt in 10 minutes. <laughs> well, go ahead. They're talking about going bankrupt in 10 minutes. As you know, yesterday we passed the, uh, the 30th anniversary of the great crash. Uh, you know, we're old enough to remember it. I was le- uh, had my class yesterday, and I lectured at the beginning about it. Of course, none of my students were even born <laughs> um, uh, in 1987. Um, do you want to give us a few thoughts of that day? Uh, do you think it can happen again? Uh, uh, and... Uh, uh, Anything else you want to add on that? Well, I, I'll start by saying that I, I lived through that. I was at S&P doing that, and I traded through that. That Monday, the worst day, which is a, a 20.5, but over 20% that the index actually went down. Dow was more, but the board of S&P was down 20%. You have to also realize that the market had been down the prior nine days, about a little under 14%. So while the 20 was the killer, a lot of people got hurt including myself. I was wiped out that Friday. I had short-term options in the money. Uh, you know, a lot of people were hurt, and the mark was down. Uh, again, it was 13.8% before that Monday. Okay, then we go into Monday, and the concern was whether the markets literally could open up and whether there'd be trading and liquidity. Uh, it was an event that hopefully could never happen again, but the underlying issue, uh, again, getting away from the program trades and, and all the safeguards we put in today is if you do not have buyers in the market, okay, there's nowhere for the market to go but down. It doesn't necessarily change the quality of the issues, but the lack of buyers or the lack of liquidity could take you down. And that could happen again. Yes, we would close the markets temporarily depending upon how far down it goes and what time of day, and we can actually close the market. Uh, which brings up other issues, obviously, uh, of liquidity and, and what it does to the overall uh, economy. You're referring to that were put in right after the crash. Yes, a certain safeguards so uh, to prevent that from happening, to put the market on hold from a from a, a slim fifth, the same way you would have from individual issues when you have an imbalance, too many people buying or selling. Uh, it permits the market to close down certain parts of it, depending upon uh, how deeply it goes down or how long it goes 
goes down, uh, and it can go from anywhere from 15 minutes to physically closing the exchanges. Uh, but that doesn't alleviate the problem. It just addresses the short-term situation. Whatever draw the market down obviously would still exist, uh, and that could continue on. It's just when not going to be able to do that 20% right away. Uh, a lot of it comes down to the, the liquidity, the ability to buy, but more importantly, whether uh, individuals and, and money managers want to buy. Uh, when you start to have selling and there's no one to buy, there's nowhere for the stocks to go but down. Uh, and, and you could get those kind of scenarios again. Uh, earnings are coming in now. They're very positive. Uh, we haven't seen the insurance claim numbers yet, which are going to be pretty bad. But the earnings are, are very good. As of this morning, about 77% of them are, are beating it. Yeah. And we need the earnings now because we're still concerned about those high PEs. If those earnings for some reason do not come through, we're going to see a lot more selling. Maybe a little bit taking off the tables the way it starts, but it'll – have some selling, and that selling would, could go you know, into that 5% or even the 10% collection if the numbers are bad uh, on there. Uh, and so the situation of no one wanting to buy is the same kind of scenario we had 30 years ago, although the triggers yeah. are different. Let's talk, let's talk about today's earnings. So you are really the master of earnings. I, I love the uh, emails you send out uh, and, of course, the weekly uh, uh, spreadsheet that you sent out. Um, uh, uh, I don't know how many people know how to access it from uh, S&P indices and index earnings, but that Excel spreadsheet is is really uh, uh, wonderful. Uh, as you say, earnings so far are very good, but it's, I, I detected in your voice a bit of concern. Um, is it that earnings are not going to match, you think, in 2017? Um, or... Are you just concerned that, you know, the P.E. ratio is 20 based on 17 uh, earnings, uh, and that is uh, too high? What, well, what is well, your it, it definitely goes to evaluations and, and levels. As you said, the P.E.s are historically high now, not astronomical, but they are on the high side, and we're concerned about that. So we need to see the actual earnings. The verbiage is nice. Income tax, that would be a great item. You know, whether it's straight income tax, repatriation, consumers, or tax, corporate tax rates. But we need to see the earnings now to justify the, that, the uh, P.E.s we have. Have you done any work about, uh, you know, if they lower the statutory tax, uh, you know, to 20% or whatever, uh, uh, I, I hear the talk of that's ten dollars on S and P earnings. Uh, Howard, have you, has, has your group done any we, uh, work on that? We've crunched some of the numbers, okay. And what we don't have, obviously, we have the nine pages from uh, the Republican plan and some some speeches, but we don't have a lot of the bells and whistles. You know what you're going to be taking away. It, you start with the fact that the S and P 500 overall pays about 25.6 percent in effective income tax, okay, on an annual basis. That's where we go. It goes from a high of telecom, which is over a third, obviously, mm -hmm. to real estate, which pays only about 3% because they pass so many along on, on dividends, uh, which is another question if they're not paying dividends, if they, whether they'll be able to continue to do that. Uh, but given just the income tax amount, if they were able to reduce it to an effective overall 20%, we should pick up about 6.5% uh, on the S&P 500 on an annual basis. 
okay, which would come into about eight and a half dollars. That's before repatriation and before we count some of the depreciations which may or may not get through on that. You know, the, uh, the ability to write that whole thing off right away is a very big item. Let, let me just reintroduce our guest here. Uh, we're talking with Howard Silverblatt. He's the head index analyst at S&P. Uh, we're doing a little bit of the talk on, on tax cuts and how they might help the, the earnings that Howard sees is really critical for driving valuations. Howard, I've done some work also on just from large caps to small caps. Um, you know, you talked about the sectors on real estate and telecom. Um, and then so you have tech companies who are more global, who have less, you know, they already have lower tax rates, a lot of the case. Yeah. So, so I, I did some work and found if you get to 20%, just looking at the effective tax rates and you have, obviously there's a lot of assumptions in this, but you know, you could get around 10% earnings growth or more on large caps and maybe 15, 16% on small caps. Is that consistent with some of the stuff you've done? That would definitely be in the parameters. The numbers that, that I just did were based just on taking the rates down, not counting any of the repatriation, which could add in, uh, right. and not adding the money that come back via consumers. Obviously, if you change consumer rates, they're 70%. Eventually, that consumer will be spending more, and it'll leak into, back into the economy on the, on the earnings. Uh, but so we just tried to take the conservative side of what we think is going to be on the first shot. Again, the bells and whistles will be the big items on here. You know, what it adds to, to, to be able to get up to that number easily. Uh, again, we just don't have, all we have is those nine pages. We've got, we've done a couple of scenarios up and down, and we definitely can come up with those same numbers. But, you know, on, on this side, uh, you know, this was the base number, just to take it down, uh, you know, basically that five uh, percentage basis points. And again, that goes from the top right down to the bottom. You know, to get a dollar on the bottom, you need to get, you know, $10 in sales. So it, it, it really has a great impact. Uh, you know, the income tax reform, dollar for dollar, right in the bottom, and that justifies the uh, PE multiples, which we're concerned about. Or uh, would let, let justify me, him. Let me, I, I would like to just ask a uh, question of information here. So, you know, we, we talk about the effective rate now being third, uh, well, the statutory rate of 35, but the effective rate is much smaller. When we talk about the statutory rate going down to 20, we might eliminate some loopholes, but couldn't that actually mean that the effective rate is actually going to be lower? Because they're not only going to eliminate every single loophole or deduction uh, that corporations have. Uh, in, is, is, that, is that a valid point? This is something that's crossed my mind, and I don't know whether uh, you know, either you, Jeremy, or, or Howard has, uh, has thought about that. Um, uh, well, definitely it's the bells and whistles. I mean, my, my father was a tax attorney, and we lived through the Reagan years when they did away with all of them. So the bells and whistles here are going to, to tell a lot, you know, up and down how it goes, uh, you know, what they do with the depreciation schedules, how the repatriation goes as well, which could come back, again, because it'll be cash as compared to the earnings component. Uh, but there definitely will be a change here uh, on the, with those bells and whistles, which we don't know. There's just too many branches down there. The, the, the full depreciation schedule, I don't know if you recall, when in the nine pages they were talking about being able to write everything off right away. We yeah. saw a, a tick up in European manufacturers, because when they go to if that comes through, it's not just going to be the U.S. manufacturers that, that benefit. I mean, Congress is going to have a difficult time to say you can only buy made in the USA. We saw these global manufacturers move up on the news just on those nine pages. 
So this is going to uh, impact globally, you know, the, the, the tax structures and the spending. I mean, the same is true for like Toyota, who has, they say they're one of the biggest U.S. car companies because they have all the plants in the U.S. and they're paying U.S. taxes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what luckily and fortunately, what the nine pages, and there's not too much talk about, is the fact that on dividends, you owe those dividend rates. Are you going to touch the qualified dividends? Uh, dividends are kind of near and dear to both, all of us here. And uh, you need to be qualified and pay income tax. If all of a sudden you're paying less income tax, will all your dividends be qualified? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, l- let me let me also just uh, circle back, uh, Howard. I know twenty is certainly a high PE from historical, although showing nowhere near what we we saw in the late nineties, and that oh, yeah. uh, the that bull market got really out of control. Uh, I, I maintain. Uh, that we are going to have a lower interest rate structure for a long time. Yes, they, the rates will go up, but that uh, just like we're now thinking of the new normal for interest rates, we might think that uh, there's, there's uh, in my mind, good justification for 20 being the new normal on P.E. ratio. I mean, why go back to the same ratio there if you're capitalizing everything else at a, at a different rate going forward. Um, I know, uh, you know, that, I don't know how much that has uh, factored into your mind, but uh, is that something you, you might might consider to be a, a, a point that makes you less anxious about today's valuations? Well, the, the 20 PE range now compared to like 18, 2018, you know, going on consensus, is still historically high. Okay, the question is, have we changed what historical, right. historical should be? Low, and we're right. not going back to 7% Treasury. Right, we're definitely not going back to the 16% ones on there. Uh, hopefully not. We're not bringing back Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the multiples that we currently have have a lot of forward projections of positive onward and upward, which is a lot of optimism because most of these numbers are coming from the, uh, the sell side, which tend to be higher. Uh, but the, the interest rates, if they, they stay low enough on here, I mean, are going to continue to make stocks more attractive on, on here, and all the numbers are going to uh, relatively work better. Um, you know, the interest expense, at least on our side, we, is really adding to the earnings. You know, uh, up and down the line, outside of utilities and uh, and telecom, you know, who are continuously refinancing, most of the S and P five hundred have locked in most of their money. Uh, they've got wicked amounts of cash. You know, whether they've gotten it here or abroad, uh, and, and they're going to be adding to uh, their cash corpus because the interest rates are staying low, as far as the PEs go. Uh, you know, we have been in those 20 numbers for a while now, both historic, you know, since 2016, you know, historically right through that the forward number is, is 18. So we could be coming into a new era of higher P.E. multiples, uh, you know, than we've been used to, at least, you know, going back with operating to 88 and the as reported gap, uh, gap type, you know, to the uh, literally to the 1870s, if you use some of uh, Schiller's uh, performer work. Howard, you know, oh. 
You'll go ahead. like a Jeremy. All right. So, so one of the, uh, you know, obviously at, as the head of index at S&P, you do a lot on indexing generally. And, you know, one of the, the narratives is that either the rise of passive um, towards, you know, just cap weight indexing is pushing up valuations and distorting the markets. Um, you know, and I, I was just defending indexing and versus the active managers yesterday at a conference and really taking bullets from some of the audience. <laughs> but what, 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 talk about where you see, you know, there's what percent of the market you see is indexed to the S&P family. How much do you think we can get to? Uh, and just any sort of comments on this active versus passive sort of debate. Sure. Um, let's start with what we do know, the, the amount under indexes. You know, that's where a fund manager uh, literally emulates the S&P 500 uh, has risen significantly. It's now about 15%, okay, uh, t- a tick over 15% as compared to several years ago would have been about 11%. Uh, so that amount has gone up. So those fund managers, good, bad, or indifferent, have to go into the S&P 500, which creates and supports those issues. Uh, that, that's a large amount. Then you have to add what's called emulators. Uh, these are people who will buy, and f- fund managers as well, who will buy a significant part of the S&P 500, sometimes around 70%, just to use a general area. With the 30%, they need to beat the index uh, and pay for all the fees and the costs, the commissions, uh, all the paperwork and the regulatory with that. Uh, estimates for those are wide, but those go from another 15 to 20 percent of the market is emulating the index. <clears throat> so all of a sudden, we are at a third of the market is looking at the S&P 500, uh, which is an enormous amount of, of money following it on there. Uh, at, at this point, has it disrupted the market? It would not, again, this is more of an editorial, it does not appear that it's disrupted it, but it's definitely giving an alternative to be passive on here as compared to active. Uh, It permits individuals to go with the general market. They reduce their risk, but they'll also uh, reduce their potential uh, gains on here. The index is broad. Not everything in the index obviously does does well. Uh, this year, markets up very nicely, but not if you're in telecom or energy, which also have their own ETFs and, and uh, uh, the ability to go in just into those. But as far as the S&P 500 dominating the market, uh, we don't see that at this point in time. It is a definite player in the trading and strategies and instruments. Um, ETFs are now more common than uh, common stocks, with the joke being that eventually there will be more combinations than than issues on this. For your own PA, for your own personal accounts, how much is indexed, how much is is active managers? Uh, I I am more into uh, large cap issues and uh, and index amounts. I cannot do a lot of individual uh, shares. I'm restricted because of, of specific rules, so I do not have the ability uh, to go out and do individual stocks, and at times that's good, and times that's bad. Uh, but uh, so, so I am more in a general portfolio, okay, which will be geared again towards an index such as the 500, or if I felt tech, I wanted to take more risk, technology, or if I was pulling back a bit when I'm worried about it, go into things like utilities. Uh, but on a personal basis. 
the IBM AT&T routine become very difficult for me to, uh, to get permission to do. Very good. Professor, any closing thoughts here on the first part of the program? Yeah, I mean, I, I just thought I would ask Howard, uh, um, you know, the game, as you said, there are often two high estimates for the coming year. They keep on coming down, and then, of course, they guide the analyst down uh, too much a bit at the end so they can beat by a penny. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a crazy game, and I just wondered if S&P ever thought that it would develop a series that would correct for that. And, and take these biases out. I, I mean, I think the market already often does that, but, I mean, do you believe the 2018 estimates for earnings is going to be as high as your Excel spreadsheet say it's going to be? Historically, it's not. Uh, the source of most of, uh, of these now are the sell side, okay? Uh, you do have top-down economists, which tend to be a little bit less, uh, but again, they and you used to carry those captain series, and yeah, oh, yes, uh, and I, I would love to go back to it. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of them are not putting them out uh, the way that they used to, and they seem to be more impacted by the internal corporate doings. Uh, so what's left, you know, on the on the bottom up are the analysts, and and while we they, we try to make them conform, they are definitely optimistic. They come from the sell side, so there's not, like there's not a, a, a vested interest in those numbers being high, uh, and they have a high tendency to come down, uh, you know, as you get closer to the quarter, and then the quarter just to beat. You know, historically, about 68% of the uh, quarters beat the estimates. Uh, so 2018, to the bottom line, still looks a bit optimistic. Uh, on on there, but we are in record numbers this quarter, even with the impact of the hurricane, which took it down about 2.4, of the, the different hurricanes, of course. Uh, so we did have a record last quarter, uh, operating uh, as reported, as expected to do a uh, record this quarter, as well as, as operating. So for today, we're good. Uh, the estimates have not started to move on the fourth quarter, 2018 still looks optimistic. It would be nice, but definitely, as you say, optimistic. Well, Howard Silverblad, thank you for much, so much for joining us on, on the program today. Thank you. Yeah, thank say, you, Howard. Have you a back again. We'll see what happens 2018. We're going to have you back. <laughs> Take care. All right, Professor. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Uh, we're going to be talking with Daniel DeBruno Booth after the, sh- after the break. She's a Fed insider, founder of Money Strong, and also the author of Fed Up. You're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Joining me for this half hour is going to be Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the founder of Money Strong Economic Consultancy and author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Really an interesting book. I got to meet Danielle earlier this year at a conference in Maine. Danielle, welcome to our program. Good. It's great to be with you today. It's uh, really an interesting uh, week for us to be talking here. Uh, as you were just telling me, today is the 30th anniversary 
of the Greenspan put, um, and you've been a sort of insider look at the Fed. Maybe you could give us some commentary as we're focused on the Fed. We're, we're all waiting for Trump to announce who he thinks is going to take over the Fed. Um, but given that 30th anniversary of this Greenspan put, maybe give some context behind that, what you see as sort of what led to that, where you see the Fed is today. Uh, just any commentary on how that's going to impact the future here? Well, you know, it's interesting to see all the 30th anniversary of the crash and, and, and see all the, the frantic media coverage. Uh, there's a certain irony or bittersweetness, if you will, for me, because uh, Alan Greenspan wasn't even in Washington, D.C. when that happened. He was in the air on his way to Dallas, Texas, when the market crashed. It wasn't until he landed after the market had closed that he found out. So he rushed back to D.C. Uh, the next day, October the 20th, and put out a statement that the Fed would basically backstop the banking and financial systems. But it was banking and financial. And in the months that followed, he actually allowed the New York Fed's trading desk um, to leak information to bond traders across the street ahead of Fed moves to inject liquidity into the system. Uh, In street parlance, we say that uh, he basically invited bond traders who would profit the most to front-run the Fed. And that is why we say that October the 20th is the birth of the Greenspan put. It's when the rules of engagement by which we trade as investors began to change. And clearly, we're 30 years on, and we, we, we've gotten further and further away with each trading day from what we would consider to be pure price discovery. Yeah, so there's a lot of commentary that, you know, the interest rates are being artificially manipulated down by all the central banks. Um, you know, there's some other takes, uh, talking with Professor Siegel, that he thinks the, the Fed, the ECB, they're just, they're just actually following the market lower and sort of think, you know, thankful that they are, because otherwise they'd be having way too tight a monetary policy. Any commentary on that? Do you think the, the, the global central banks are, are really depressing rates today much more than they, they ought to be? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you ask that. Uh, Merrill Lynch did some wonderful groundbreaking work uh, that showed that the year 2017, uh, this year, we are, we are enjoying, if that's the word you want to use, the fastest run rate of global quantitative easing that we've ever seen, including kind of those DEFCON 1 days in the, in the very beginning. Uh, and even at the height of QE when the Fed was purchasing $85 billion a month, so 2017 will go down in the record books uh, as having the most quantitative easing put into the system. I think investors view all of those trillions of dollars. We're pushing $20 trillion if you look in the aggregate at global central banks. I think investors perceive those QE funds as being fungible across the globe, and they have indeed continued to suppress interest rates. We won't possibly see an incremental taper. We'll find out from Mario Draghi on October the 26th exactly what his intentions are. Hopefully he'll be specific, but that won't even be implemented until December or January 2018, most aggressive case scenario. Yeah, so it's really hard to say, like, how much higher would rates be today without all of the, you know, without all the central bank manipulation um, or sort of buying that they're, they're doing. Um, well, you have any- I mean, European high-yield bonds trade 20 basis points, you know, a fifth of a percentage point below in yield versus our 10-year treasury. I mean, we're in a strange, strange world right now, Jeremy. Yeah. Although, you know, on a currency neutral basis, if you took the fact that the ECB has the negative short term rates and then you did, you know, an actual, you know, in, in 
sort of hedged out your euro risk, you'd be paid the additional like one and a half, two percent. So it's really not, you know, in, in some ways that's not exactly a, a fair comparison. So, so it's not quite as distortive. But, but yeah, it's still very low. Just, it's it's ultimately very low. You just noted it's it, it, it they're still we, we 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 gently call them high yield. Yeah. But uh, Mr. Milken would still tell you that they're junk. <laughs> yeah, U.S. U.S. Treasuries are high yield given where the German bonds and the Japanese uh, bonds are. It's all relative. Yes. So uh, maybe talk a little bit about how you see sort of the new Fed shaping up. I mean, your book, you talked a lot about the, the sort of culture at the Fed, the Ph.D. economists. Uh, you came in with a very different take. You worked at investment banks. You were looking at the markets much more closely. Um, and the culture is very different at the Fed. How do you see the, the Fed shaping up? We're going to have a lot of turnover on the, on the board. Um, Trump's going to be nominating a lot of people. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about from your, your book and your just perspective on what you saw the culture at the Fed, how you see that change. Uh, going forward here? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. If you back up for a minute, uh, the, the gallows humor is that Tarullo and Brainerd drew straws and Tarullo won. So he was able to leave uh, because it's, it's, it's a known fact that Lael Brainerd wants to leave as well. So you talk about vacancies. There are a ton of them. I mean, Jay Powell is literally the last man standing uh, at the Fed, and that's whether or not he does get chosen uh, to be the head of the Fed, but, but to say that this administration and the Congress have a tremendous opportunity to reshape the culture of the Fed is a vast understatement, but by the same token, they could choose to do a whole lot of nothing. So um, I, I'm encouraged by the confirmation of Randy Quarles. Uh, we know that he has an eye towards less strenuous regulation and that he has certainly not drank the Kool-Aid that most of the PhDs have. He's worked on planet Earth. He's worked in private equity. He understands the ramifications of, of keeping interest rates at artificially low levels. So there is already the opportunity to bring dissent back to the Federal Reserve Board, where we've only seen two board members dissent since 1996. It's an extraordinarily low number given that prior to 1996, there was a ton of dissent on the board. That, that particular year stands out because that's when they started um, transcribing transcripts of the meetings, and that's when people on the board started to get along in great fashion because they knew that their words were being written down. Interesting. So you see, do you have any view today? I mean, do you, if you think about who's being talked about as the leadership, potential leadership of the Fed, how that's going to play out in the next few weeks? You know, um, unfortunately, it, it shifts with the wind. I was fairly encouraged uh, about a week ago, and, and that's how quickly things can change. Uh, the, the, the rumor was that it was going to be John Taylor taking the chair position and Jay Powell accepting the vice chair position, that combination uh, would have certainly uh, made me happy. I think that there's a, a misperception in the public that, that, that John Taylor would say, okay, I'm here, I'm the head of the Fed, it's going to be the Taylor rule or nothing. I don't, think that he's that, uh, I don't think that he's that rigid, but I think that the combination of those two plus a Randy Quarles would certainly be a great starting point to add an element of discipline to monetary policymaking, which we've kind of had the opposite in recent years. It's been more akin to throwing spaghetti up, up against the wall and seeing if it sticks. 
Yeah. Um, and so, so you think, do you, and so you have a, you have a preference for Taylor if, uh, is that, is that what I'm hearing? If he, uh, that would be my preference, but again, it would, it would also be Jay Powell. That's why I'm okay. trying to be as, as did I, oh my gosh, I'm going back to my central banking days as measured as possible, uh, <laughs> in, in my comments, because there are so many positions to fill. And I think yeah. that it would be rational at this point to name more than one nominee at the same time. I, I think that you could get away with that, given the fact that there are so few individuals left standing at the Federal Reserve Board. But if it, if, if it just comes down to one person, and if, as it appears to be the case, it is as difficult to get things done in Congress at all, I mean, I mean you, you, can, you can joke about screwing in a light bulb, but clearly this president has not been capable of expeditiously having any of his wishes granted by Congress, if, if it comes down to that, then it would be Jay Powell, because he's already been vetted by Congress, and he's, a, he's the only sitting Republican on the board. Hmm. Interesting. We're, we're talking with Daniel DiMartino Booth, the founder of Money Strong, an economic consultancy, and the author of Fed Up, an insider take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America, which is actually you know, a very bold statement there saying the Federal Reserve is, is bad for America. Um, I mean, how do you think they need to, I mean, as you think about the, changing the leadership, what do you think is the root cause of this being bad for America, you know, sort of said, sub-headline of the book? Is it just that they're manipulating the markets with these Greenspan puts and the, all the buying of the bonds? I mean, what's your ideal? What would make the Fed good for America, in, in your view? Well, the gravest sin, and this is actually where the book opens, is in having taken interest rates to the zero bound in the first place. Uh, at the time, there were a few hawks who were arguing for the fact that it was liquidity that had seized up in the markets. And at the time, the New York Fed, uh, in conjunction with other districts, they were coming up with liquidity facilities to help resolve the issues that were plaguing the market. It wasn't the price of money. It wasn't the level of interest rates per se that was the sticking point. It was the fact that liquidity had dried up overnight. So there was a commercial paper facility. There was obviously a lot of, of, of liquidity being put into the mortgage system um, and, and other areas. There, there was an alphabet soup of them. There were over a dozen of these facilities. And the argument at the time was you can stop at 2%. You don't have to go below 2% in order to achieve extraordinarily low borrowing costs in conjunction with the facilities. And you could have even launched quantitative easing without taking interest rates to zero, which is where a lot of the animus in our society was born, because all of a sudden retirees and people who were 70 and 80 years old were getting nothing on their savings from a lifetime of work. And that's where I think a lot of the anger element, if you will, against the Fed was born. And that's mm. that savers were being sacrificed. And speculators were being rewarded. And, and you, you, you see, you've seen the numbers, Jeremy, the, the inequality divide since we initiated this zero interest rate policy since 2008. The inequality divide has just gapped out that much further. Yeah. No, and, and it's um, when you think about the, the outlook for the next years and the next you know, policy of interest rates, we are finally you know, starting to reduce the balance sheet, it's starting to roll over. The market doesn't place a lot of emphasis. Um, the market's more skeptical than the Fed in terms of how quickly they're going to be able to raise rates. Um, do you have a view on 
on the the path for rates and how you think the the Fed's going to I mean obviously we need the leadership team and see who's going to come in and that's going to impact a lot but if based on what you see as the economic fundamentals today how do you see sort of the path for rates going over the next you know 12 months Well so, so I I think that the Fed is going to chase the unemployment rate which is a huge no-no in economics by the way because unemployment is 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 considered to be the most lagging of economic indicators so you should never use that to lead your thinking um, but I think that if, if you look at supplier deliveries, and I, I promise I, I've got a point here, but if you look at supplier deliveries, they've never been this slow in the history of any of the PMIs in any of the purchasing managers' indices. And that means that inventories have been depleted very quickly, and there will be a tremendous, huge inventory rebuild going into the last few months of this year. We could possibly see... GDP of 3-4% in the fourth quarter, but yield curves don't lie. And what the yield curve is telling you right now, the difference between the two-year and the 10-year Treasury right now of about 79 basis points is telling you that the Fed can possibly get off to probably not three uh, 25 basis point increases, rate hikes, before they've inverted the curve. I would be astonished if the Fed continued to let the balance sheet shrink in the face of an inverted yield curve that has never failed to predict recession. Yeah, yeah, we we think we've been talking about that. How the Fed is probably, you know, going to get hesitant if the yield curve inverts. Although if they if this balance sheet runoff puts pressure on rates rising, uh, you get Draghi who is. Uh, maybe he starts tapering their purchases. Maybe global rates start moving up, and then that you know put, puts you know helps the the curve not invert as much. Is that a possible scenario as well? Well, that would be ideal. And uh, Lael Brainerd and Janet Yellen have certainly uh, articulated that view that the best case scenario would be that they force a steepening in the yield curve. But to go back to the question that you asked a few minutes ago, underlying economic fundamentals. No, in the most recent industrial production figures that we saw, the automobile industry is still in a recession, despite Hurricane Harvey uh, causing huge numbers of cars to be sold in, in, in the state of Texas where I live. Fundamentally speaking, if we can't get oil much above $50 a barrel, which is kind of where it is today, you're just not going to put enough people to work in high-paying jobs to sustain this beyond the hurricane, the triple hurricane and, and wildfire rebuilds out in California. It just won't happen. The underlying uh, strength of the economy is just not there. Yeah. Now, I, I was just listening to uh, some of your, your appearances on another podcast, and they talked about um, you know, your, your insights going into the 2003 housing crisis, which was uh, you know, spot on, and, and you were able to recognize the, the risk from the housing uh, situation. Any risk that you see today as the big flags for both the economy? I mean, do you see any, um, you know, what's sort of your, your, your sort of recession watch gauge that everybody talks about? You know, what would be the key indicator? And, and the inverted yield curve is one that we just talked about, but is there any excesses in the economy that you're worried about today? Well, I think, um, you know, when we started, when, when the Fed started tapering its purchases years ago, we saw a huge influx of capital to the United States seeking out what was perceived to be then, oh, gosh, the Fed's going to be raising rates. So we saw a huge influx of capital into our commercial real estate market. 
commercial real estate worldwide has never been as richly valued as it is today. But that's not exactly where I think a lot of the risk is. I look to investment-grade bonds. Uh, you know, I, I was, it, it, it was chilling to hear Yellen speak recently saying that the banking system was so much safer and that cross-border funding uh, was a, a fraction of what it had been going into 07, 08, and that therefore she was heartened by this. Well, there's no two financial crises that play out the same way, and there's no denying that, uh, that at the start of the crisis there was $150 trillion in debt globally, and today we have $220 trillion of debt. So the re-leveraging has been that much more magnificent than what it was going into 2008. However, it's in a different place. It's taken place via the capital markets, not the traditional conventional banking system, but that doesn't mean the leverage is not there. So I look to places where the stamp of approval of credit rating agencies, you just had my great friend Howard on, but investors are looking to any investment grade uh, credit rating as being money good, uh, despite the fact that a lot of these investment grade issuers have leveraged themselves up to their eyeballs to record record levels. Um, and, and there's been a, a huge rating degradation that's occurred along the way such that now a ton of the investment grade sector is on the cusp of being downgraded. I wrote last week in my newsletter about the potential for falling angels, and, um, and that would be potential downgrades to junk. It is the capital markets, Jeremy, where my focus is this time. Very interesting. So is, 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 do you think that it's more of an issue for the U.S. markets, for global markets? Um, when you think about the deleveraging that's taken place, in some ways, the banks in the U.S. You know, delever much quicker than European banks, um, which maybe still have more to do. Um, any of you there? Or is it, is it really a U.S. phenomenon that you're focused on? Well, I am focused on the U.S. investment grade market because it's enormous and because, it's, it, and because of liquidity issues related to Dodd-Frank and Basel III. But you are correct. The $70 trillion build we've had in, in credit is definitely a global phenomenon. Our largest banks have cleaned themselves up. The small and mid-sized banks in the United States have never had the exposure that they have on their balance sheets to commercial real estate. I found it to be the height of irony that the Fed decided to not stress test them this year. Um, because they are where a lot of the risk lies in our banking system. And you are correct that globally there are quite a few basket cases. Few people recognize that after the United States and Japan, Italy is the third largest sovereign issuer in the world, and a huge chunk of its banking system remains insolvent. So there are definitely issues in other banks outside of the United States. And then there's the black box called China where a yeah. good portion of the leverage building that's gone on over the past decade has occurred, about which we know very, very little. Yeah, and you look at the Italian bond, they only have a, a 2% 10-year versus our 237 here. Now, of course, it's yeah, that same current issue I talked about for the high yield market, but it is, uh, it's an interesting world where you have all those issues over there, and the ECB, in a way, is, is keeping those rates negative at the short end, so it's... Uh, keeping the long end pretty contained there, too. It, it, the ECB has also recognized the, the risk, and they're trying to figure out how to contrive a mechanism of sorts to try and diffuse some of that risk in Italy. They're talking about creating new, new kinds of bonds and, and, and good banks, bad banks, good bonds, bad bonds. There's a recognition that there's a problem, um, but, but the level of innovation may or may not be there. 
So maybe, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the, uh, the current environment. Maybe talk a little bit more about what you're trying to do with your, your newsletter, your economic consultancy for people who want to follow you. What's the focus, uh, you know, week to week and, and the sort of insights you're trying to bring to people? Well, my goal is to be the contrarian out there. Uh, and it's not for the sake of, of hyperbole or that the, the, the theater's burning down and the exits are blocked. It's not that at all. I, I just I, I worked on the sell side for long enough to recognize that if there's one thing that investors crave, it's the anti-sell side. And so I'll write about things like investment grade when nobody else is. Th- this week I wrote that there was a, a good probability that we would see three for three for three, that we would see a 3.9% unemployment rate that would overshoot to the downside, that we would see 3% GDP sustained for several quarters, and that we could possibly, as a result, see a 3,000 in the S&P 500, which is an out-of-body experience for somebody like me, but again, a very contrarian view. Long-term, I'm extraordinarily bearish on stocks, of course, for all the reasons that that you spoke about in the first half of the show, Um, but in the short term, I, I like to think that my newsletter gives people investment ideas that have nothing to do with mainstream thinking. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've become known as nationally as a pension expert because I think that that's one of the areas and 401ks uh, over the next decade that's going to be a, a real source of tinder, if you will, for society, for, for anxiety, for cultural um, uprisings. And I don't use that word lightly at all. Uh, but stop and think about how somebody whose 401k has just been annihilated is going to feel about their property taxes rising at the same time to top off the pension that's also just been annihilated. So I write about these things. The feedback tends Great. to be very angry. Um, but, that is, that, but, but that's what I try and do with, with my weekly newsletter is to open people's eyes to what they're not seeing. Great. And we're going to have to end on that. Danielle DiMartino Booth, she's the founder of Money Strong, an economic consultancy, and also the author of Fed Up. Thanks for joining us on, on the program today, Danielle. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Uh, you can also follow us on our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.